It's a pleasure to welcome you to this podcast, In Conversation, created and hosted by Queen's University Belfast. And it's a real pleasure for me also to introduce our research scholar today. Dr. Tim Wilson is director of the Hander Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St. Andrews. He studied at the University of Oxford for his undergraduate and DPhil degrees, and I'm delighted to say that he studied at Queen's University Belfast for his Master's. His books include the very well-regarded study Frontiers of Violence, published by Oxford University Press in 2010, a grassroots comparison of different patterns of ethnic violence, and also the book on which we'll focus today, Killing Strangers, How Political Violence Became Modern, published by OUP this year, 2020. Tim, your book explores, quote, how forms of political violence have changed over time, and it very much considers the how of political violence. Can you say something for listeners about why you thought that particular focus was so required? Certainly, and thank you for that very kind introduction. Yes, the the obsession with uh, the how questions in the book is really derives from a sense that the devil is in the detail and that it's only through the examination of the how questions that we get closer to being able to monitor the changing quality of political violence over time. We need a fine-grained approach. And it's only that way that I think you can begin to uh, isolate what is authentically modern about uh, the contemporary cruelties we see around us. And it's really a reaction, if you like, against some provocative work by the likes of Michael Mazar, Steven Pinker, that sees political violence in the contemporary world as a failure of modernization, uh, as, as somehow a sign that modernization processes have gone badly wrong. And somewhere in there is a sort of, I think, lurking a sort of odd moral triumphalism that Western civilization that built the A-bomb, built the concentration camps, um, somehow, somehow emerges as as a sort of shining exemplar of a kind of first civilization in history that has kind of dealt with and overcome the problem of human violence and that we moderns are, uh, in the West are somehow better people and better angels. I'm deeply skeptical and unconvinced by that. And the book is an attempt to, uh, to dig deeper, to suggest that uh, modern societies may be differently violent from their predecessors, but there are horrors and atrocities lurking there which would have amazed our ancestors. I want to pick up on a couple of things you mentioned there, the aspect of the detail and the aspect of the relation of violence that you described to, to the modern. Like other historians, you consider human experience to be messy rather than neat. And you're emphatic that violence, as you put it, mirrors wider historical processes that it never stands wholly apart from its times. But strikingly also, your book addresses painful questions, including what you refer to as political violence is, quote, stunning impersonality. I wonder if you can expand a bit on that impersonal aspect of the phenomenon and how that relates to modernity, which, as you've just mentioned, is a central theme of the argument of the book. Thank you. Yes, the what I see as the, the puzzle of impersonal violence, it's stunningly indifferent quality to its victims the quality of what the writer Joseph Conrad once memorably called its bloodstained inanity, which does seem to me to be at the heart of 
really a whole range of the more dramatic acts of contemporary violence one sees around one, the hostage crisis, the, uh, the sort of random bombing and so on and so forth. This seems to me a puzzle that needs to be explained and that if we handle it carefully, it might tell us something about ourselves and our own society because really the claim of the book is that many of the processes driving or incentivizing these kind of acts are not actually aberrational or exceptional. They are merely extreme examples of much wider trends in a world in which uh, all power depends upon the ability to pull the tides of mass attentions one's way does tend to encourage a very specific type of impersonal horror is, is one of the major arguments in the book. And there's several factors coming together there. Um, as you yourself just indicated, that the book does sort of suggest that this is messy, but, but added together, they, they seem to have a conversion effect. Uh, the miniaturization of explosives, the revolutions in uh, technologies of communication and destruction have sort of come together to incentivize these kind of uh, impersonal horrors. And that this is deeply related to wider processes and tendencies of modernization, but that that hasn't really been systematically explored. And if you like the book, however ambitiously, sort of tries to take a flying kick with both feet at a locked research cellar, whether it ends up sprawling in the corridor or not, I'll let readers decide. Thank you, Tim. You refer repeatedly and tellingly in the book to Irish political violence. And as I say, you're a Queen's graduate, having studied material here at Queen's in your master's that's of relevance to the book. So I've got two Irish-related questions, I suppose. The first is, how does Ireland relate to the book's central argument? But the second is, how far has, in your own experience, the location within which you've pursued your research influenced the trajectory and nature of that work on political violence? You've done research in Oxford, you've done research in Belfast, you've done research in St Andrews. So Ireland and the book and locations of research and your trajectory. Well... I tend to use Ireland as a sort of storehouse of example to plunder freely. Um, I suppose if one were to situate the Irish experience against the wider argument of the book, it would be this. There's both typical and atypical features. Uh, one of the central drivers of, of, of the book, or one central arguments, is that uh, the power of modern Western states uh, is infrastructural. In other words, it is exerted through society and not just over society. Now, the only pressure or presence that can really challenge the development of that process is a mass movement that imagines a different type of state with a different type of cultural face. The... the uh, tendency that, of course, we call nationalism, and you've written on with distinction. And Ireland, in that sense, having a nationalist movement that certainly resisted full-scale and wholehearted incorporation into the British state and becoming West Britons is, is not especially atypical in any kind of pan-European perspective. There's plenty of counterexamples, and I've uh, written on, on at least one of the parallel cases in the southern Poland as well. So that's not exceptional, although it is important. But I think the more atypical feature is location. You know, as we've seen demonstrated during the Brexit crisis, Ireland has tended to be deeply peripheral to English elites and publics. And at moments of acute and severe crisis, British policy has tended to oscillate wildly between 
concessions, but also uh, excursions into despotic repression. Uh, and as other historians before me, Charles Townsend and so on, have, have pointed out that the quality of that repression has tended to be that it has been both acute, but also oddly half-hearted. It's not Balkan in its intensity. You know, putting it frankly, the English don't care enough to sort of try and, uh, or at least they haven't in the more recent period, uh, the last 150 years or so, uh, you know, they haven't tried sort of wide-scale social engineering through genocide or ethnic cleansing uh, in, in Ireland. Because Ireland tends to be on the periphery of their kind of geopolitical consciousness. And what that does, I think, is open up a space uh, for challenges, uh, particularly Republican challenges of tactics of provocation and embarrassment through violence uh, that uh, have been really very fertile. It's a very fertile space. And in that sense, I think Ireland ends up sort of really functioning, seen from the point of view parochially of London, uh, seen, sort of ends up functioning essentially as a kind of offshore laboratory of, of creative experimentation, uh, a little as the Middle East has tended to do for wider Europe. As zones become more stable, the periphery uh, becomes a sort of creative zone of experimentation, sometimes horrific, uh, but often, as I say, deeply innovative. So uh, that, that is, is broadly how I would uh, see it fitting within the wider uh, argument and trajectory of the book. In terms of the institutions I've been fortunate enough to work in and why and how they moulded my work the way they did. I mean, if I were to start with Queen's, which is a university I hold enormous affection for, I think there are a couple of things that always impressed me about Queen's. One is what I think of as a sort of permeable membrane between history and politics departments that I think is is in many ways actually typical of uh, Irish universities in the 32-county sense as well, that, putting it bluntly, the political institutions are so recent for a historian, only 100 or so years old nearly, um, that history and politics departments have tended to have much more interaction in a creative way than than some of their counterparts in British universities, and that I think is enormously useful. I think too there's just been a sort of there's a kind of synergistic energy, a kind of way in which research agendas can become more of their sum of their parts by having politics, history, anthropology, um, Institute of Irish Studies and so on and so forth, all within a very close location of each other and uh, cross-fertilizing merrily. That So I think part of what I took from my years at Queen's was the importance of talking to other scholars from other disciplinary uh, backgrounds. Oxford, well, Oxford was my act of adolescent rebellion for, to, uh, that I moved to after a Cambridge upbringing um, in my childhood. And, and Oxford really, I suppose, set for me the standards of what good historical research looks like as sort of what I think of as a very hungry caterpillar approach to the reading list, uh, to read widely, to read, ver read voraciously. And also, to borrow a phrase... Um, if you're going to be interested in terrorism, that you don't just read books with terrorism in the title. Uh, that, I think, is, is, is what I've taken from the scholars that I've been fortunate enough to deal with in Oxford. And, and indeed, this superb Irish history scene there uh, that moulded me in many deep and profound ways of Roy Foster's uh, Irish history seminar. St Andrews, 
I have you to blame since I joined, was lucky enough to join the department when you were director. And if I'm honest, there was a sort of element of, of creative culture shock there that as a historian, I hadn't really dealt with deeply with the phenomenon of terrorism. I think like many in the profession, I tended to see it as a symptom of wider causes. In many ways, that's actually the approach this book takes. But I think uh, joining CSTPV in St. Andrews sort of forced me to sort of deal with the challenge of 9-11, the gauntlet thrown down, arguably twice in two centuries in 1914 and 2001. You know, amateurs from below had managed to destabilize the international system very profoundly. And the, I think it was time to sort of think um, about how one how one reacted to that seriously as a historian. So, you know, I overcame the feeling of sort of, as in a spaghetti western that one had wandered into the wrong bar and maybe one should wander out again i'm glad i stayed uh and the the book in many ways it would be provocative to call it a a, a history of terrorism that dare not speak the name um you know i think a lot of the the work on on trying to define terrorism con being conceptually sharp about it has been enormously useful and suggestive uh i do think there is a phenomenon of terroristic violence as i refer to it which does have a quality of of um, impersonality and randomness. Uh, but I, I'm afraid, subscribe to this traditional historian's reluctance to be drawn too deep into the definitional morass. You mentioned there amateurs from below and non-state terrorist actors challenging the far more powerful states against which they use their violence. And one theme which emerges from your book, Killing Strangers, is what you call, quote, the resilience of Western states, the resilience of Western states. It seems to me a very important aspect of the argument. Can you expand a bit on that for listeners and its implications? Yes, certainly. Um, I have to, I have to note a, a certain nervousness in recent weeks, and just in case that the kind of recent extraordinary events in America uh, turned out to be a sort of Fort Sumter moment of 1861, the opening shots of the American Civil War. I obviously hope they won't, and I don't think they will. Uh, turn out so disastrously. My primary motivation is that would be a moral disaster, but it would also be an academic embarrassment because the book does tend to stress this quality of resilience in Western states, as, as you say. And really, I suppose there's several points I'm making here. One is that there's a long aggregation, there's a long trajectory here, and that ever since the, even if one to take the American and French revolutions at the end of the 18th century, as, a, as an arbitrary starting point, but an important one, there's been a sort of relentless aggregation of state power, uh, of coercive power through uh, bureaucracies and through control over citizens' life of a very fine-grained type that ancient empires, such as the Roman Empire, which never had a police force, could not hope to rival. So that has been a sort of accelerative process uh, up until the late 20th century, certainly at the, at the least, but I think to some extent still continues, you know, if one were to try and stage a revolution now, what buildings would one storm? In 1916, one took over the general post office in Dublin. In 1917, one took over the post office and telephone exchange in Petrograd. But, you know, since most, all those government civil servants will be working on their laptops thanks to the pandemic, there is no obvious nerve centre to, to knock out. So I'm not persuaded that Western states have become as weak as some of the debates and discourses 
on terrorism tend to suggest, and just as an aside, you know, President Macron in France has, in, in, in admittedly the face of some horrible uh, atrocities recently, um, has really given us a masterclass in how to overreact, you know, of, of how to sort of treat this as an existential threat. So I don't think Western states are just that fragile. And I think certain threats uh, that we used to worry about have become obsolete. I think the old style military coup, whatever Trump's uh, adventurism, but uh, at the moment, but playing fast and loose with the constitution, but uh, old style military coups, the man on horseback, the civil war, they, they just don't seem to be threats that are likely to reemerge in the short term uh, in, in the kind of Western states of Western Europe and North America that are particularly the focus of this book. And I think that does have very profound implications for how we manage the serious, but not system-challenging and existential threat of, of, of anti-state terrorism. You mentioned, Tim, contemporary US politics. Given your wonderfully wide-angled analysis of the historical evolution of political violence, how far is it possible for a scholar like yourself then to sketch out possibilities for the future of the phenomenon? Is that area is that an area you don't want to tread into? Or what would be some of the intuitions you would have about possible futures? Well, the traditional historians get out is, of course, the future is not my period. Um, I do try and tangle with it in a couple of pages at the end of the book. And I think all one can do um, is try and read off the likely continued future momentum of established trends that we observe around us. You know, the, the historian is not in the business of being a racing tipster, as Eric Hobsbawm said. And I think to that extent, my observations may be fairly banal, but I'll offer them anyway. I think there's obviously a, a bifurcation in threat trajectories. Uh, one can't go to any uh, self-respecting conference of terrorism experts with a focus on horizon scanning these days and not hear about drones. I think that's very sensible. I think, you know, we have seen drones used for assassination attempts in Colombia a couple of years back. There'll be much more of that. It's hard to see how there wouldn't be. Uh, so that sort of experimentation with technologies, particularly the sort of Internet of Things uh, as it hits mass markets, uh, I think is, is a fairly likely generator of future mayhem. And it, it, it seems sensible to pay it some attention. Perhaps less, marginally less obviously, though, is the turn towards primitivism that I think is poorly understood. And by that, I mean, uh, for instance, the, the turn towards vehicle ramming attacks. You know, we've had 100 years of societies with mass automobile ownership, at least in North America. Uh, the recent trend, in really in, only in the last 10 years or so, towards vehicle ramming seems extraordinarily late. And that needs explanation. But also the kind of resurgence of the knife uh, as a stabbing and beheading tool of, of shock and awe. You know, these are kind of counterintuitive kind of developments at one level. But I think... They perhaps make a little bit more sense if we see them as piggybacking on the communications revolution. Uh, that the fact that one now has streets full of camera phones means that one can conduct these rather low-tech, um, in some ways, as I say, primitive and amateur attacks, but they will generate horrific footage in a way that 20 or 30 years ago, by the time the press cameraman had arrived, the emergency services would have cleared up. So I think one can see a sort of synergy there. I speculate too that we might see a spreading of assassination down the scale of hierarchy in other words you know leaders are now so well protected 
that uh, there seems to be a, a possible turn towards more mid-ranking assassination, uh, not prime ministers, but MPs in the tragic case of Joe Cox, uh, not uh, presidents so much, but congressmen or indeed congresswomen disproportionately, since so much of this kind of uh, horror seems to to focus disproportionately on uh, women representatives. And that really brings me to my third point, that I think a key variable will actually be cultural, whether we can develop a more embedded political culture of civility. Uh, I've been struck looking at the impacts of the information age and the social media revolution, the sort of broad parallels with the first eras of industrialization or, or, and urbanization, when uh, masses of peasants started to flock to these burgeoning cities in the 19th century, the rules of engagement, uh, who was to give way to who on a pavement and that sort of thing, led to endless fights and, and disputes and the increase in violence. But, you know, new codes of civility develops. And I, uh, the optimist in me wants to hope that uh, the social media uh, revolution with its spectacular destabilizations in this, in this realm uh, may yet be reined in to some degree. And obviously we're seeing attempts uh, to do that. But, you know, the, the rise of many-to-many -many communication uh, systems is really a sort of random collision generator, and we need to find ways of, of managing that better. So those are really my, my rather uh, hazy intuitions. Um, some experimentation with, with uh, high-tech when it's on the mass market, a um, lot more low-tech nastiness that is worrying really for its volume, not for its um, not for its professionalism, and then a key variable in the background about whether we can develop a more civilised way of disagreeing with our opponents politically. Tim, it's been fascinating today hearing from and learning greatly from your erudite insights. Thank you for that. Killing Strangers, How Political Violence Became Modern, as I said at the start, is published by Oxford University Press and is a very major contribution to the understanding of a major subject. When post-pandemic normality returns, Tim, it'll be wonderful to welcome you in person back to Queen's University and back to Belfast. But until then, for a wonderfully wide-ranging discussion today in this podcast, thank you very much to Tim Wilson. A great pleasure. Thank you.